Well, church, if you want to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, we're going to continue in our study of John's Gospel, pick it up in chapter 5 this morning. If you're visiting here with us, you're new, we're so glad that you joined us this morning. If you're new to the Bible, the larger numbers on those pages are the chapter divisions, so we're looking at chapter 5, the smaller verses are the the verse uh, breakups of that chapter, and encourage you to keep your Bible open and follow along as we look at God's Word together. From time to time, a trial will capture the attention of an entire nation. In high school, I remember chemistry class being canceled so that we could collectively watch the conclusion of the O.J. Simpson case. Right now, many are following media coverage of the Derek Chauvin case. People want to know what's true. They want to know how that truth, what that truth means for them and for their nation. And so oftentimes these trials are watched with careful attention. But friends, of all the trials that the world has known, there's a far greater trial that has captured the world's attention long before the invention of the television, the trial of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John portrays Jesus on trial, not just at the end of his ministry, but actually continually all through his ministry. In other words, as people come in contact with Jesus, it becomes very clear that Jesus is not your average Joe. His teaching, his miracles, his statements about himself, his presence demand a verdict. They demand a response from those who are coming in contact with and meeting Jesus. Now, Christians, we gather every Sunday like this because Sunday is the day that Jesus got up from the dead. So, yes, this is Easter. It's a special celebration of that resurrection. But let me be clear. We Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every Sunday. So I understand, though, when you hear, maybe you're new to Christianity, maybe you're not yet a Christian, um, when you hear this claim that, that a man died on Friday and then rose again on Sunday, not just figuratively, not just spiritually, we Christians believe he rose bodily, he rose historically. That statement is incredible. But that means that as we together read the Gospel of John, which declares this truth about the resurrection, it's not just the people in the first century that find themselves having to make a verdict about Jesus. We too have to decide, uh, what are we going to do with him? So in our search for life and truth, a search, by the way, that all of us are on, How can we know that Jesus is who he says he is? What difference or what impact will our verdict of who he is have on our lives? Well, John's gospel is going to help us answer those questions. John's gospel provides eyewitness testimony and evidence that is divinely inspired for us to help make that verdict. So as we look at chapter 5, we're going to break chapter 5 into two sections. We're going to look at the first 30 verses. Uh, If you're taking notes, point number one is this. Jesus the accused. Jesus the accused. That's verses 1 through 15. And then point number two is Jesus on trial. Jesus on trial. That's verses 16 through 30. So Jesus the accused and then Jesus on trial. So with that in mind, let's jump into the text. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1. God's word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. 
we'll stop there. Those first three verses actually kind of set the scene for where we're, we're headed here. We, we just let, if you were with us last week, we left chapter four when Jesus was in Galilee. And when we come to chapter five, he's traveled south from Galilee through Samaria down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem in terms of elevation for a feast of the Jews. Jews were commanded to go to the, the, the temple in Jerusalem three times a year for these three different feasts. We don't know which feast he's he's attending. It's not told in chapter five. But the camera camera zooms into this location, a pool by the Sheep Gate. We know the Sheep Gate from, uh, from history is in the northeast part of Jerusalem. And what seems to happen is that in, in Jesus' day, there was, a, there was a small opening in the northern part of the temple wall, and this pool was used to wash the sheep before they were ushered in through the sheep gate into the temple for sacrifice. So there would, there would often be lambs in this pool being cleansed for sacrifice. But it, that's not the only use of this pool. We know from chapter 5 here that it was also a place where crowds of disabled people gathered, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And we're meant to imagine a, we're meant to see a large crowd. This is not just a few people. This is a big pool with a crowd of, of invalids. Why do they gather there? Well, you'll notice when, if you're reading the ESV translation of the Bible, you, it, it jumps from verse 3 to verse 5. And if you're reading carefully, you might be, well, what happened to verse 4? Well, there's a footnote there in your ESV translation. And in the footnote, it reads this. An angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, why does the ESV move that verse from God's inspired word uh, from the text down to a footnote? Well, it seems that this verse is, uh, we know from the manuscript evidence that this this verse, verse 4, is not in the older reliable Greek manuscripts. And it seems like what likely happened was it was added by a scribe uh, in the margins of the text that he was copying to explain a superstition that the people in the first century had about this pool. Today, we know that this pool was not stirred by an angel. We know that this pool was fed by various springs. And when those springs would feed the water into the pool, it would actually look like it was being stirred. So rather than the superstition, it was, that's what was happening but nonetheless, even, even though we know what happens now, these, this crowd of invalids clung to the superstition, this religious superstition, because they were out of options. The hospital didn't work. The doctor's visit didn't work. They were out of options, and they were desperate to get better. And so this superstition offered a hope for them. Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up while I am going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. So even in verse seven, you can see the man's uh, uh, acceptance of that superstition. He's waiting for the water to be stirred and he can't get down there. Now we got to remember this, this pool is not Beverly Hills pool with celebrities working on their tan. Uh, this is the part of town that most people would have tried to avoid because either this pool is used for cleaning sheep or this is where the invalids would hang out. And so most people would avoid this part of town, but not Jesus. Out of a huge crowd of sick people, Jesus goes to this pool and he singles out this one man. That his healing involves Jesus saying, get up and walk and take up your mat, suggests that he was likely paralyzed. He was a paraplegic. Now, in the first century, we need to remember that there were were no wheelchairs. There was no handicapped parking spots at the, the local restaurant. There was no wheelchair ramps. And so in the first century, if you're a paraplegic, if you want to get from point A to point B, you had to be carried on a mat by your friends. Or you had to drag yourself along by your hands as your legs dragged behind you. His income would likely come from begging 
on the street corner. And because paraplegics often lose control of their bladders or their bowels, it's likely that he stunk of feces and urine. All of this, the text says, he endured for 38 years. So when Jesus comes to him and says, do you want to be healed? (laughs) Uh, yeah. (laughs) If you're suffering like this for 38 years, waiting in pain and shame and loss, we can understand that this man uh, might be bitter or even cranky, kind of a curmudgeon. It's not hard to imagine him rolling his eyes at Jesus' question, of course I want to be healed. That's why I'm at this pool. I'm waiting for the water to be stirred. I've waited for 38 years. Again, he's holding on to the superstition that maybe there's a miracle in the pool for him. I want to pause here because we want to, I, want to, I want us to remember, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we need to remember this theme of water, this theme of water that John has been developing in chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 3, we, we met Nicodemus. He was a very religious, respectable leader in the community, uh, but he knew something was missing, so he comes to Jesus at night uh, thinking that, you know, I think my religion's enough for me, but something's not right, so he comes to Jesus, and Jesus gets right to the point. Your religion's not enough, Nicodemus. You must be born again. And in fact, in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again by the Spirit of God. You must be cleansed, not by your religious waters, but by the water that the Spirit of God brings to cleanse you from your sin. Then we go to chapter 4. And again, we see this theme of water. The, The woman comes to the well and she's thirsty. And she thinks, she's wrestling to understand what Jesus is talking about, that she's thinking that maybe this water from, the, from Jacob's well will satisfy her, and Jesus is very clear with her, this water from Jacob's well will not satisfy you. If you're gonna be satisfied, you need water that I will give to you, the, the living water that wells up to eternal life. And so Jesus' question to this man is not cruel. Do you want to be healed? His question is aimed at helping him realize that what he's hoping in in this pool, what he's hoping in in this religious superstition is not going to fix him. He needs Jesus if he wants to get well. The superstition about this pool, in fact, was cruel. Just think about that. The idea was that the pool was stirred by an angel and only the first person in was to be healed. And so if you are if your body's really broken like this man's, then it's the, it's the people that were not as broken that got into the pool first. The really needy people never got in. That's cruel. And he held on to the hope that maybe there's a miracle in there for him. But Jesus offers a different solution. And he does it not through the miracle of a pool of water. He does it by the authority of his voice. Get up. Just pause and think about that. This man is paraplegic, and Jesus says to him, get up. Get up. Take up your bed and walk. Now, friends, if you and I came to a person in a wheelchair and said to them, get up, that would be a cruel joke to that person. Because we have no authority, no power in our words to do anything about this this person in the wheelchair. But when Jesus says, get up to a paraplegic He gets up because even the bones that are broken in this man's body, they obey, diseases obey, paralysis obeys the voice of Jesus. Jesus' word has authority and power. It's a cool story, right? But why does he do this healing? Well, friends, we've got to be careful here. As amazing as this miracle is, the miracle itself is not the point of the text. The miracle acts to point us to who Jesus is, which is the point of the text. Look at verse 9, the last part of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. 
Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. All right, so in in the end of verse 9, when John includes this detail that it happens on the Sabbath, if this is a movie, the the soundtrack in in the background goes, dun, 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 right? Oh, no. So the command to remember the Sabbath day, we find that in, first of all, in Genesis 2, when God rests on the seventh day, but we also find it in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments. And this this command to keep the Sabbath is God's gift. It's God's gift to man, to men and women, to cease from our customary work, to delight in God, to enjoy his gifts, to free up an entire day for worship, to enjoy him and his people and his word and to rest and to rest in God. Jesus will say in, in Mark 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was God's gift, not meant to be an oppressive burden of rules, but it was a gift to enjoy. It was a gift to enjoy God and his gifts. And so when this man is relieved from the oppressive burden that he suffered under for 38 years, you'd think that, It'd be a reason to celebrate. Yes! And we come to the Jewish leader, these Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, and all they can see is, oh man, somebody broke the rules. Verse 10. It is a Sabbath. It is a Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They're not celebrating, they're angry. Now, when they say that it's not lawful, we need to be careful and understand what that means. That law refers not to the rules of God, but to their rules. Jewish oral tradition, which would later be, which would later be preserved in the, the Mishnah, uh, actually outlined 39 categories of do's and don'ts on the Sabbath. That's not 39 rules, that's 39 categories, each category having a drop box of separate rules of what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And one of their rules, according to their oral tradition, was you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. He was breaking the rules of man. He was not disobeying God's word. You won't find that in the Old Testament law. So in answer, in verse 11, he he says, listen, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Don't take it up. Hey, you got a beef. I'm just doing what he told me to do. Right? It's a sad irony. The Sabbath police come along and they're scolding him. You're disobeying the law. When actually he's obeying God. He's doing what Jesus told them to do. So we, it's, it's here that we begin to see the conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus. And, and, and John, who's writing this, is, is using this tension in chapter 5 to show us who Jesus actually is. It's, it's this conflict that the miracle and the Sabbath actually set up for us that actually is the stage for which John is going to say, this is who Jesus is. Now, before we get to that, though, in the second half of chapter 5. I, I just want to draw out two applications for us from this, these first 15 verses. Um, two implications, two applications. So application number one is this. Friends, come to Jesus in your need. Just like this man. Now, actually, Jesus came to him. He took the initiative. But look at Jesus in his compassion for this man and come to Jesus in your need. One of the details that we need to note in this text is that there was a multitude, there was a crowd of invalids, of blind, lame, and paralyzed people at this pool. But Jesus did not heal every person at that pool. 
he singles out one man and he healed him. And, and he doesn't stick around to, to kind of establish a healing ministry, you know, uh, you know the, the sheep gate healing ministry. He doesn't do that. By chapter, by chapter 6, we're going to find that he's back up north in Galilee. The purpose, the purpose Jesus came, the, the reason that Jesus came first in his earthly ministry first was not to heal every sick person. Jesus came 2,000 years ago first to die for sinners like you and me. That's why John the Baptist said in chapter, nine, chapter 1, verse 29, when he sees Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why he came. That also helps to explain why Jesus says to the man what he does in verse 14. He finds him in the temple and he says to this man, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Focus on that word worse. Nothing worse may happen to you. What could be worse than what he's experienced in his pain and frustration and shame and loss for 38 years? What could be worse? Hell is worse. Suffering the eternal righteous wrath of God for our sin is worse. He's calling this man to avoid the coming judgment. Yes, being paralyzed is terrible. We should not diminish that. Suffering in this life is terrible. And suffering often makes it hard for us to see beyond our temporal existence on this earth. But Jesus is clear in verse 14 that there, are, there is something worse than being paralyzed. Friends, whether a consequence of our sinful folly or whether it's just the, the sheer fact that we all live together in a fallen world under sin's curse, the theological truth here is that all suffering, all earthquakes and paralysis and colds and COVID, all suffering is the result of sin. Not all, not all specific suffering is the result of specific sin. We're going to see that in chapter 9. But all suffering is in some way a result of sin. There was no sorrow. There was no brokenness. There was no suffering in the Garden of Eden when there was no sin. And so when Jesus came first 2,000 years ago, he came first to deal with sin. When he comes a second time, as he promises, it's then that he will remove the curse of sin, and it's then that he will heal every broken body. This is, this is the healing. So this healing of this man, why does he do it? It's kind of like a sneak peek. It's him announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's about to be consummated. This, this fuller healing, this complete healing, this making of the new heavens and the new earth is on its way. When we read Isaiah 35 earlier, that's what Isaiah 35 is talking about. It's saying when the Christ comes, this is what he's going to do. The eyes of the blind, Isaiah 35, 5, will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. That's what's happening in John 5. And the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy in verse 10. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What a great image. Sighing, fleeing away. There'll be no more sighing. There'll be no more sorrow and sickness and death in the new heavens and the new earth. And this healing is a, a foretaste, a shadow, a guarantee of that future complete healing. So what do we do in the meanwhile when we wait for that return of Christ in this new heavens and this new earth? What do we do in the meanwhile? Well, we come to Jesus in our need. Like the man at the pool, you may be discouraged, you might be anxious, you might be angry, you might be confused, you might be hurting today. Can you imagine Jesus coming to you today, wherever you're at, and saying to you, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Friends, no matter what it is that you are struggling with, when Jesus speaks, God is speaking. And when God speaks, he speaks with authority. Wind, waves, disease, 
death itself obeys his voice. If you come to him today, I can't tell you what he's going to do. And I can't tell you when he will do that. But he's good. And he's able. He's powerful. And even if God says to you in your request, you need to wait, child of God. You need to wait. He promises to walk with us in the pain and the suffering. And he promises to get us through. So come to Jesus. Application number two here in the first part. Application number two. Keep the rules of man a servant of God's word. Keep the rules of man a servant of God's word. Now listen, rules are not necessarily bad. You might have a personal rule of I'm going to go to bed at a certain time and I'm going to avoid certain foods. I'm going to read a certain amount every day. That's fine. Rules can be helpful for us in our self-discipline, our spiritual disciplines. Rules can be helpful. But when man-made rules turn into something that we trust, we're at risk of legalism. The idea that keeping the rules is what makes me right with God. Legalism is this idea that keeping the rules is what makes me right with God. Now, Christianity does have standards, right? There are do's and don'ts within Christianity, but our standards come from God's word, not from the rules of man. And friends, when the standard is God's word, we realize very quickly that there's not, there's not this level of Christianity and that level of Christianity. When the standard is God's word, we realize we're all in this together. We're all on equal footing because we all fall short of God's law. We all need God's grace. We all need God's forgiveness. Not just those people. There's not those people and this people. It's, we're in this together. The church is a group of people who recognize that we're all sinners who left to ourselves deserve hell. The church is a group of people who realize that, that we have been rescued from hell that we deserve by God's amazing grace. That's what shapes us. Legalists are inconsistent. For a legalist, one rule or one standard is essential. You can't break this. Whereas another thing, they're, they're going to be really flexible on and okay with kind of bending on. Well, what's, what's the reason for that? I don't know. It's just inconsistent. And such, such inconsistency, I think, stems from favoring the rules that they don't struggle with, that we don't struggle with, which in turn produces a legalistic spirit. You can be a legalist. You can also have a legalistic spirit. A life that is not humbled, not broken, not amazed, not satisfied by the grace of God. That's a legalistic spirit. And from there, with that legalistic spirit, it becomes very easy to look down on others, to be demanding, to lack compassion and kindness and patience. Because we kind of see ourselves as, well, we're good. And really what it is is self-righteousness. And we look down on others. It's, it's the this, it's us versus them. Friends, one of the things that we see from John 5 is that legalism chokes out compassion. Legalism produces divisions in groups of people, including churches. We saw it in John 5. Instead of rejoicing with a man that was healed, the legalists grumble. And they miss Jesus because the rules that they set up, the rules that make them look good, were being challenged by Jesus. Self-righteousness comes in many different forms, many different varieties. I've said this before, but it's not just that we have opinions about politics or COVID or ethnicity and race. We can make our opinion a test of fellowship. We can make our opinion about something a measuring stick for what we think it means to be a Christian. Yeah, 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 I know God's grace. Yeah, yeah, I know Jesus died for me, but it's this it's, it's the gospel plus this. If we're going to fellowship, we've got to trust Jesus and we've got to agree on this. 
That's not the gospel anymore. That's legalism. Instead of marveling that God has rescued us from something worse than the hardest trial we can go through, legalists become proud, they become demanding, they lack compassion and kindness and patience. First Baptist Church, we must be careful here. We need to assess our standards continuously. We need to assess our opinions. We need to continually ask ourselves the question, where did I learn to think like this? I'm thinking this, where did I, th- where did I learn to think like this? Is it God's word? Is it, is it in God's word? Or is it perhaps that I learned to think like this from somewhere else in the world or the culture or even in my own thinking and imagination? Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Again and again, church, we must be reading and hearing God's word read and preached. We must read God's word because we need the cleansing water of God's word to make sure that the rules of man are servants of the word of God, not the other way around. Now, when you hear all this, you may be thinking about so-and-so who you see as a legalist, and maybe you're getting ready to text them this sermon so that they can listen to this sermon because they're legalists next week. But I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. Church, we all must do a heart check here. We need the fresh, the fresh breeze. The, we, need, we need the cleansing water of God's word to renew our, our minds over and over and over. All right. So far we've seen in chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, Jesus accused. So they're, they're, they don't like what he's doing. And then in verses 16 through 30, we see Jesus on trial. That's point number two, Jesus on trial. A trial that's set up to answer the question, who is Jesus? Look with me at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. All right. Now in verse 16, the, the word that John uses for persecute in the Greek, it's a, it's a, it's a legal term. It's a, it's a word that means to accuse in court or to prosecute. So we can kind of see this, this uh, trial language that John is setting up for us here. And notice the reason in verse 16, that they're so upset. Why are they so upset with Jesus in verse 16? Because Jesus healed someone. Because on the Sabbath, Jesus set someone free from 38 years of bondage. How dare Jesus do that? And that accusation of breaking the Sabbath rules then leads them to the second accusation, which is even worse, the accusation of blasphemy. You see, Jesus answers their charge with the defense that he gives in verse 17. His defense is this in verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. What Jesus says there in verse 17 when he says the father is working until now, he's actually making a point that most every Jewish rabbi would agree with. That God never stops working, even on the Sabbath. Because if God, the creator of the world, stops working on the Sabbath, who sustains the universe? So all, all, all the Jewish rabbis would agree that God, in that sense, never stops working. He doesn't break the Sabbath, but he never, he never stops working. So, okay, so that part of verse 17, so far so good. No objection. But then Jesus says, and I am working. <laughs> Again, you cue the background music. Dun, dun, dun. Jesus' defense. Why are you doing this on the Sabbath? His defense for why it's okay for him to heal on the Sabbath 
is because he's God. Friends, some people today will object. That they'll, they'll say, hey, Jesus never claimed to be God in the, in the Bible. And they assume that the church is actually putting the claim of deity in Jesus' mouth that we're kind of forcing that into the text. But that objection doesn't stand. If you just read the Gospels, it's all over the place. In the first century, Jesus' enemies hated him. They wanted to kill him because they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He's saying it. And he doesn't then deny it. He defends it and explains it. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now we're going to see that phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, three times in this text. Verse 19, verse 24, and verse 25. And it has two functions. One, it helps structure the text. But it also is Jesus' way of saying, hey, what I'm about to say to you is trustworthy. What I'm about to say to you is really important. What's he saying? Jesus' claim to be equal with God is true. But it might sound to some ears like he's saying that he is a rival, independent deity different than or even kind of independent of God the Father, God, the God that we see in the Old Testament. And, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. If that's what you're thinking, that's not what I mean. Far from it. We Christians, we worship one God. In that sense, we agree with our Jewish friends. We even agree with our Muslim friends. We worship one God. We are a monotheistic religion. And yet, when you read the Bible... We also believe that God exists eternally as three persons, in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each God, and they're distinct from each other, and yet we worship one God. Now, if that sounds mind-boggling to you, welcome to the club. <laughs> There's a part of that I don't understand, but it's true, because that's how God prevents, that presents himself. That's how God reveals himself to us in the pages of Scripture. Jesus, therefore, has divine authority. Jesus has divine rights. Jesus is equal with God. He is God. That's how the gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was, with, the word was with God, and the Word was God. He is equal with God. And yet, Jesus is making it clear that he is always submissive to God the Father. Jesus is not independent of the Father doing his own thing as a rival God. His purpose as the Son of God is derived from the Father's will. Verse 19, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. A simple way of understanding what he's talking about here, I know it's kind of complex. It's some heavy theological lifting. But a simple way of understanding what he's saying here is this. Like Father, like Son. Can you understand that? We're good. Theologian D.A. Carson writes it this way. He says, the Father initiates, sends, commands, commissions, grants. The Son responds, obeys, performs the Father's will, and receives authority. Both equally God, but distinct functions, different roles. So what makes this relationship between the Father and the Son possible? Well, Jesus is going to continue, and he's going to provide three answers for what makes this possible in verses 20 through 23. And, and we know that there's kind of three answers because each answer kind of begins with that conjunction for, F-O-R. So kind of keep your eyes open for that. Verse 20. For, how does he do this? For, verse 20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. 
For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the, fa- whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Friends, one of, the, one, of the, one of my prayers throughout this week, for my own heart and for yours right now, I've been praying throughout this week, is that as we see Jesus in this text, we would marvel. That's why he is, that's one of the purposes that he's revealing himself right now, is that we might honor him, that we might look at him and, whoa, marvel and worship. I can't make my heart do that. I can't make your heart do that. God must do that in our hearts. So I pray that as we see him right now, we marvel. The son's obedience to the father is not based on threats. Do this or else. It's not based on an arm twisting of Jesus. And I think sometimes we... Submission these days is almost like a four-letter word, right? It comes with so much baggage, but not with Jesus, so many of the Father. There's no arm twisting. There's no threats. His, his relationship, his obedience to the Father is based on love. He says in the text, the Father's love for the Son is displayed in showing Jesus all that he himself is doing. The Son's love for the Father is displayed in his perfect obedience to the Father, an obedience even that goes to the cross, This love between the Father and the Son then leads to two tasks that are given to Jesus as the Son of God. And these two tasks are the greater works that I think Jesus is referring to in verse 21. Task number one, he has the power to give life. That's verse 21. Task number two, he has the authority to judge. The power to give life and the authority to judge, these are the greater works that the Father gives to Jesus, his son. Well, that that creates a problem. Because we've been reading this text this whole time saying that the Jewish leaders have to make a verdict about Jesus. And that's true. But Jesus is saying to them here now, listen, guys, as God in the flesh, I'm the one in charge. You don't sit in the judgment seat and judge me. In the end, I judge you. My Father has sent me not to condemn you. The purpose of my coming is to rescue you from your sin and from his righteous wrath. But if you refuse me, if you don't honor me, then you are going to fail to honor the Father who you claim. There's not multiple roads to God. The only way to God is through Jesus. He himself says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's what he's saying to them. You don't honor me, you don't honor the Father. There's no plan B here. Now, honor, honor can be a dangerous thing for us humans, right? It's instinctive in us to want honor. Now, when you meet somebody for the first time, the first question we probably ask is, hey, what's your name? Never, never met before. What's your name? The second question we usually ask is what? What do you do? And the reason we ask that is because we know we assign value to people based on what their role is, their job. Whether you're a surgeon, a stay-at-home mom, a professional athlete, or you're unemployed, the world assigns value based on roles. And friends, I just want to say that's not biblical. Seeing ourselves, thinking of our identity in that way, either leads to a foolish pride, I'm really really killing it, or to despair. I'm nobody. But consider, just consider what the divine father-son relationship means for us. They have distinct roles. But there's no bitterness. There's no anger. There's no envy. There's no rivalry, rivalry between the Father and the Son. When you see the Father and the Son working together, there's just love. There's joy. There's celebration of each other. It's, it's heaven. They have distinct 
roles, and yet father and son are equally God. They're not threatened by each other. They don't find their value in their role, but in who they are. They're equally God. The father, the divine father and son relationship is in some respects unique, so we've got to be careful here. But I think their relationship is instructive for us in how we think about ourselves and how we relate to other people and even in the roles that God assigns to us in our homes as parents and as husbands and wives in our jobs or even in the church. But let me just take work, for example. If you're frustrated in your current job or your lack of job, maybe you feel undervalued or overlooked. Maybe you're wrestling with envy at your job place because you envy the success or, or the position of somebody else in your company. And you're miserable. Proverbs, Proverbs talks about how envy is like rottenness in the bones. You're miserable. If that's where you're at today, just remember, look, look to God. Look at, how, look, at their, look at the father and son's relationship. Remember, and then look at it yourself. Remember, our value, your value is not rooted in your role. It's in the fact that you are made in the image of God. And because you are made in the image of God, whether you're doing heart surgery or whether you're mopping floors, with God's help, you have the capacity to reflect the character of God in what you do. And that's what makes you somebody. That's what makes you distinct. That's what makes you valuable and gives you worth. Not the actual task that you're doing, but in the God-reflectingness of your being that only human beings have. So every person, whether you're male or female, black or white, rich or poor, young or old, you are made in God's image. And friends, that's what matters. That's where your dignity, your worth, your value rest. Look there. And I think it's this truth that helps us reject the world's value system. We looked at Jesus, we look at how he and the Father relate, and then we say, that's the way to go. We reject the world's value system and we trust Jesus and what he says about us. And that's what we see happening in verse 24. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, so there's that saying again, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Now, verses 24 through 27, I think the time, the, the focus here is on today, now. And then in verses 28 through 30, which we'll get to in a little bit, that, that, the focus there is on the future, okay? So that, that might be helpful to keep in mind as we look at these verses. The focus in 24 through 27 is today. And and look at verse 24. Jesus says that the one who hears his word and believes him who sent him has, present tense, has eternal life. It's not, Christian, it's not just that you will one day get eternal life. It's that you have eternal life now. John 17, 3 says that this is eternal life, that you know the Father. Eternal life is not just a matter of duration of time. It's true, but eternal life is also the quality of life. It's knowing God. So when Jesus in verse 25 says, the hour is now here. The hour is coming, but the hour hour is now here. Again, present tense, right now, today. The hour is now here when the dead will hear the voice of God and live. He's talking about the new birth. Ephesians 2.1 says that our starting point in this world, spiritually speaking, is that we are spiritually dead. Yes, your heart is beating. Yes, your lungs are breathing, but spiritually you're dead. You're as responsive to God as a rock. And yet, just like the man's paralysis obeyed the voice of God, get up, paraplegic, and he walked. That was just a little glimpse 
of how God will say with his authoritative voice to those who are spiritually dead, get up, get up, and the dead will come alive. If you're a Christian, that's already happened to you. You were dead in your sins on a one-way course to hell, and somehow God brought someone in your life to share the gospel with you, the spirit of God made you alive. You heard that good news, and you said, that's good news. And your life began to change. The word of God came alive to you. You actually had a desire to put sin to death, and, and the things of God became attracted to you. You had a desire to gather with God's people. You're like, what's happening to me? I'll tell you what happened. God made you alive. And you're not perfect yet, but God is making you like Jesus, his son. In that sense, the Christian experiences a glimpse of the future resurrection here and now. Your being made alive spiritually is a glimpse of the resurrection life, which Paul talks about in Philippians 3. God is at work in you miraculously right now to make us a new creation and to provide us with a living hope that is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Got it? Pretty cool. So if verses 24 to 28 focus on God's work in your life, Christian, today, in the new birth, and then in sanctification, making us like Jesus, well then verses 28 through 30 look forward, not to the present, Look to the future, the future day of judgment, the future physical resurrection. We've experienced a a spiritual resurrection now, but he's going to point forward to a physical resurrection. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Man, you you see something of the power of God's word. When he speaks, even the dead hear. The dead come to life, not only spiritually, but physically. He's saying, again, in, in, in this text, verse 28, an hour is coming. Now in verse 25, he says an hour is coming and is now here. In verse 28, he doesn't have the, and is now here. It's all future. The hour is coming. Future tense. When Christ will come a second time, he will return. And everyone who has died, and we've gone to their funeral, whether in this past year or in 2,000 years ago, everyone who has died, including believers and unbelievers, The text says all who are in the tomb, even those whose physical bodies have turned to dust by now, all who are in the tomb, it's a lot of people, will hear his voice. Christ will come again. He will sit on his throne. And because he alone has the, has the, the unique authority, he has the power to give life, and because he has the authority to judge, The dead will rise physically from the grave. Don't think of heaven as this eternal kind of spiritual floating around in clouds. That's not your final state, friends. You will have a body, a physical body, a glorified body, but a physical body in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what this is talking about. That's astounding. How is it that people thousands of years ago who have died will come to life when they hear the voice of Jesus the judge? What's it going to be like? Is it going to be like Ezekiel 37 when there's a rattling of the dry bones and they come to life and there's tissue that, that, that the prophet actually sees come on these bones? I don't know. I have no idea. But it's going to happen. Jesus will sit on his throne and say to the dead, it's time. The trumpet will sound, the dead will rise. And all will stand before Jesus, who's seated on his throne as king of kings, and he will judge. What difference, what difference is Jesus' resurrection 2,000 years ago have in terms of our resurrection? What's the connection between Jesus' resurrection 
2,000 years ago in our future resurrection. Everything. When, when Jesus talks about doing good in verse 29, we've got to be careful there. He's not saying that we are saved by our good works. That would, that would be to undo everything that he's been already saying in John's gospel and the rest of the New Testament. We're not saved by our good works. What he means there in verse 29 is he's talking about fruit. He's talking about the evidence of saving faith, which always, by the way, results in fruit. Faith without works is dead, James 2 says. Friends, all the benefits of all the benefits that we receive in the Christian life, forgiveness of sin and, and reconciliation with God and reconciliation with, with each other, every benefit that we receive in the Christian life does not come because of our performance. It comes because of our union with Christ. It comes because we are united with Christ. Once we were separated him, from him because of our sin, but it comes because of our united to Christ who is our representative, our second Adam. By faith, we are united to Christ. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place for our sin, but we also died with him. You can read about it in Galatians 2, verse 20. You can read about it in Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. We died with him. Why? Because we were united to Christ. Where he goes, we go. And so here's the connection. If Jesus is still in the tomb, we are still in our sins. We have no hope. His resurrection is the very basis of our hope for a future resurrection. But praise God, the tomb is empty. Christ has risen. At the cross, our sin, therefore, has already been judged. Our sin has been paid for. Our sin has been forgiven in Christ. Those who trust in him can be confident of God's promise in verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes, not tries to be a good person, whoever hears my word and believes does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. They will enter the resurrection of life with Jesus in glorified bodies that will never get sick or sin again in the new heavens, in the new earth. It will be paradise. Those who don't trust in Christ, those who say, I I think I can do this myself, I'm a pretty good person, they will find on that day that they are still in their sins. They've ignored or rejected the way, the way that God has opened for sin to be forgiven. Therefore, they will come into God's judgment. And as verse 30 reminds us, his judgment is just. Friends, we've seen Jesus accused in verses 1 through 15. We've seen Jesus on trial in verses 16 through 30. And that's where we end this morning. Jesus has made shocking claims that he is equal with God, that he has the power to give life, and that he has the authority to judge. And that is true. What's left, what's left is your verdict. What's left is your decision, your response. What will you do with Jesus? If you say that he's a liar, he's making some pretty bold claims, I don't think it's true, then you should reject him. A a man like Jesus who makes these claims that he's actually God, if he's a liar, you should just reject him. You're kind of wasting your time being here. But if Jesus is telling the truth, you should bend your knee. You should give him your life, and you should worship Jesus. Friends, if you're not yet a Christian and you are hearing God's voice this morning in the pages of Scripture, don't harden your hearts. Today, I plead with you to turn from your sin, your self-reliance, and to look to Jesus and trust in him alone. Trust in him. Now, some of you, this, this might be your first time at church in a long time or, or ever, and this might be all kind of new to you, and you're like, well, ugh. I'm confused. If that's you, 
come back next Sunday. We meet every Sunday like this, Lord willing, right? Come back next Sunday. Keep reading John's gospel. Ask God in prayer to show you the truth and ask all the questions that you have, whatever question that you have. I'm going to be up front afterwards. We're going to have pastors at our doors, at that door, that door, and the the, uh, front gate as well. If you have any prayer requests, any questions about something that you've heard this morning, um, talk to us. Raise those questions. We'd love to talk with you more about what this text is saying, about what Jesus, uh, who he is, and what it means for your life. Let's pray together.